From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. On Thursday, February 2nd, Ohio authors Marilyn Greenwald and Julie Rabini will host a night with the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew as part of the Thurber House's programming. Greenwald is an Ohio University journalism professor and author of The Secret of the Hardy Boys, Leslie McFarlane, and The Stratmeyer Syndicate. Rubini is the author of Missing Mellie Benson, The Secret Case of the Nancy Drew Ghostwriter and Journalist. Welcome to Craft, both. Thank you. Tell me about how you were first introduced to the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. Uh, was this something out of your childhood? Um, well, I, I guess I'll, I'll speak first. I, 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 ironically, although I did the you know book about the Hardy Boys out there, I, I did read a little Nancy Drew, never read the Hardy Boys. Um, but I will say, I, the reason I was introduced to this topic, I had read a kind of a humor column in the Washington Post about somebody saying, I just want to find out who Franklin W. Dixon is. He was a character out of my childhood. And he, one thing led to another, and he said he doesn't exist. It turns out he was a Canadian newspaper man, you know, who in the 20s started writing the Hardy Boys under Franklin W. Dixon. So that's initially how I got interested in the book. As far as the, the series themselves. I did read um, Nancy Drew. I never read Hardy Boys. I read both. I grew up (laughs) primarily on Nancy Drew. But as I shared with Doug earlier, I have four brothers, so their influence um, invited the Hardy Boys into my life. So so I enjoyed reading, reading both the series. So I remember reading the Hardy Boys, but I'm not sure that I ever read Nancy Drew. Uh, so, you know, there'll be some uh, tension here between (laughs) all of these characters. (laughs) So tell me about what surprised you as you researched the backgrounds of these different books um, and uh, where they were all written by different people and using the pen names of Franklin W. Dixon and Carolyn Keene. Julie, you can, you want to start on that or? Well, I, um... I really did not know much of the about the background of the creation of Nancy Drew, the pseudonym Edward Stratemeyer, until I began delving into the research of Millie Benson's life. Um, I proposed to Ohio University Press that I write a biography of Millie, knowing that she was the original ghostwriter of Nancy Drew, i.e. the original Carolyn Keene. They didn't really know much of anything more about that. And during my journey, I first traveled to Iowa, where Millie Augustine was her main name, was born and raised, and went to the University of Iowa. And uh, was the first person, not the first woman, as is often promoted, first person to graduate with a master's in journalism from the University of Iowa, which is pretty amazing, given the time frame, late 20s. And... um, then went to New York City and visited the Stratemeyer Syndicate records, as I know that Marilyn had the opportunity to do so as well. And it was just, I spent two and a half days in the archives and could have spent so much more time just um, reading letters, correspondence from Edward Stratemeyer, from his daughters, Harriet and Edna, who carried on the enterprise. And inter- interestingly, Edward passed away just 12 days after the first three Nancy Drew books were released in 1930. And his daughters, primarily Harriet, carried on 
the enterprise. And to their credit, and to the credit of Millie, who was willing to stay on board as that original Carolyn Keene, um, without those women, Nancy Drew wouldn't still be in existence today. So I, I found that whole Stratemeyer story just fascinating and, and the genius of Edward Stratemeyer in, in creating all of the series and characters that he did. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think the, the, the history of, of the series fiction is really fascinating, and I didn't know anything about it either. Um, there were, you know, kind of big things and little things I didn't know. The books, I think, if not all of them, most of them, they were almost a collaborative effort because, um, at least with the Hardy Boys, and I, I think probably with Nancy Drew, Stratemeyer would come up with a basic outline of plot, and then the author would fill that in. So one of the reasons I think Millie and um, Leslie McFarlane are important because they both added the character, you know, they were good writers, they added character to the books. If you got somebody who, you know, just made them bland, did not make them interesting, the the original outline was there, but I don't think the character and the flavor of the books would have been there, and that's why I think those two series were so popular. Um, one other thing I know with with uh, Hardy Boys, for a while, you know, um, children's librarians complained about them. I mean, they they kind of went in and out of favor over the years. There was a time when libraries wouldn't carry them, um, so there was a lot of controversy. At least. I think in the first 20, 25 years about the quality of the books. Um, and I, I just think that, that a lot of people thought it's serious fiction that automatically makes it inferior, which wasn't necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. So they were objecting to the quality of the writing as opposed to uh, something objectionable in the stories themselves? Right. I think they thought of them as as um, conveyor belt factory, which in a weird way they were, at least in the, in the case of the Hardy Boys that I'm familiar with. But, you know, they saw it that way, yet the writing, particularly when these two authors were talking about, those two authors, it was quite good. I mean, it really, you know, one thing McFarlane said is, I want to send boys to a dictionary. So he would throw in a word that he thought, you know, maybe that was beyond their vocabulary. And um, I get to, you know, even remembering Nancy Drew, I think the same thing with Millie. So, yeah, it was just this, they're not real authors, they're not real books kind of attitude. I'm not sure why the objections, that's an excellent question. I guess we could only go back to librarians from the time, but... I offer when visiting schools that, and you touched upon it, Marilyn, is that Edward Stratemeyer is compared to Ford, what Ford did for the automobile. He didn't invent the automobile, but he created that, that automation and that, and that um, factory line. And, and so pretty much did Stratemeyer for literature. In fact, ironically, when I was doing my research at the New York Public Library, there was an exhibit on children's literature, and there was a special area dedicated to Edward Stratemeyer and Nancy Drew and all of his series. And there was one of the original letters. Um, I had found it flagged in the files and the folders in um, the materials, the Stratemeyer materials. It was out on display, and it was a letter from Edward to Millie. And um, I will show a slide of that picture. It was a difficult image to take because it was under glass, and, you know, they wouldn't remove it for me. But... <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, and I share with children that if it weren't for Edward Stratemeyer, we wouldn't have the um, necessarily Harry Potter today. And of course, kids are all aghast at that. And I explain <laughs> that, you know, Edward Stratemeyer and his writers, they 
learned to draw these children in so that just as when I was growing up, I'd read one Nancy Drew and I couldn't wait to get the next issue, my hands on the next issue. Um, you know, he just created these, these holding points in this mystery and, and the authors did that um, through his, his outlines where they just couldn't wait to gobble up the, the next book. So, mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of wonder if it's, uh, I don't know how familiar they were with the publisher, the librarians, but when I saw the name of it called the, the Stratemeyer Syndicate, it seemed ominous to me, you know, like it suggested its own mystery. Somehow there was a, um, this mysterious man or woman behind the syndicate. Uh, and it, it made me laugh a little bit when I first read that because uh, I don't remember ever caring who the publisher was at the time. But reading about that now is um, you don't get a lot of syndicate, although you do get the cartoon syndicate. Um, right. The only other place I can think of besides crime that uses right. that term. Right. And he, in yeah, essence, yeah. It, the syndicate was really Edward and his assistant, Harriet, which is kind of confusing in the story yeah. because he had an assistant named Harriet and a daughter named Harriet. And then, of course, it was Harriet and Enda. And they weren't really the publishers. They were described as being like book packagers, that they were kind of the middleman. Before there were agents connecting author with publishers, the Stratemeyers were that and then some. As Marilyn offered, they would, Edward and then Harriet would create these outlines for these books. And the, the writers, the ghost writers would, would write the stories and then they would be published by initially Grosset and Dunlap. So... Um, they they weren't the publishers; they were the creators, the Stratemeyer Syndicate, and um, and then of course, um, subject of Marilyn's book and, and Millie were those um, ghostwriters. You know, one quick thing we you, we were talking about the outlines. Um, you know, the outlines, and, and I'm sure this was probably the case with with Nancy Drew. Stratemeyer was very strict with with the outlines as far as the length. Every single, um, for Leslie McFarlane, it had to be exactly 165 typewritten pages, which translated into 216, you know, book pages, 15 chapters. I mean, and I even remember reading letters, and again, at the New York Public Library, Leslie could be, you know, four pages over you know, four typewritten pages over, and Stratemeyer let him know, you know, it was good, blah, 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 you were over. So, you know, we're talking about very strict, mm-hmm. um, you know, dimensions for, for the books and, 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 and the outlines. It wasn't just, hey, make this roughly 200 pages. It, it certainly was, that's not the way it was. But if he was four pages over, did he make him uh, edit down those four oh, pages? Oh, yeah, either, I think Stratemeyer Stratemeyer did that. Yeah, okay. he, he took it and he cut it down by whatever. And I was laughing too because it wasn't. Oh, you're fifty pages over. You know, you. I mean, <laughs> right. it, it wasn't course. very many pages. You know, right. so the same held true for Nancy Drew that there were strict guidelines as to you know what the expectations were. And since again, um, Millie had written just the first three under um, Edward Stratemeyer, and it was typical. I don't recall of the story of the Hardy Boys, but in the case of Nancy Drew and in the case of many of the series that Stratemeyer created, they released three books at a time called a breeder set. And yeah, in essence, yeah. they were breeding an audience that they wanted to hook the audience with these first three volumes and then continue to crank them out. Um, and um, so since there was just that short time frame where Edward and Millie actually worked together due to his unfortunate um, and sudden death, there were many more letters between Harriet and Millie. And as Harriet became, I think, found her voice 
it was interesting that Millie was finding her voice more as a writer and Harriet was finding her voice just as equally as the head of the Stratemeyer syndicate. And, you know, there was definitely some friction there, but I think when it's all said and done, they respected each other for the role that they played. I've read a couple of things online that suggested that the earlier books in both series were a little more rough than some of the later ones uh, in terms of that Nancy Drew got away with maybe more in the beginning than she did, and they toned down her character. And the same with uh, some of the exploits of the Hardy Boys, although later on the Hardy Boys entered into um, what the the Hardy Boys, there was a a new imprint that was more um, like you could have murders and things in that that didn't occur in the in the in the first books. So tell me a little bit about how they changed over the course of their publication histories. Wow. You know, I'm going to condense this and, and Julie can add, because this, this is kind of a long story, but, but briefly, um, I, I think that the, the beginning books um, with, the, with the Stratemeyer Syndicate, um, to, to the, the um, Hardy Boys, uh, he, Leslie seemed to have a little more leeway in creating characters. There was an Aunt Gertrude character who initially was going to just visit for a couple, you know, weeks, and she became a major character in the Hardy Boys. She was peppery and dictatorial were the exact words, and she became this kind of funny, admonishing character. She started out as a very minor and temporary character, but Leslie created her like that. He thought she could be funny, she could be a character. So, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say because a lot depended on who the ghostwriter was at the time, but I think at the beginning, at least Stratemeyer, and maybe to some extent the the daughters, and, and Julie would know that, I think he gave them a little more leeway as far as the characters. Now, one thing, and I said, and, and people who read the books or read the books should know this if they don't already. In 1959, there was a major overhaul of, you know, the successful Stratemeyer books to eliminate a lot, like, like, you know, a lot of what the characters, for instance, the villains were swarthy. They were dark. That was eliminated. There, there was various racist language. Asians were described as yellow. And then there was just the updating. Roadsters became convertibles. But they were pretty much overhauled. So I think a lot of people who read the books that were copyrighted after 1959 think they're reading the originals, and they're really not. Right. Um, and that so was wouldn't you case. say, Julie, that, that that was the case with Nancy Drew? Yes. Absolutely. And in fact, uh, Millie gained a reputation as being, she was feisty, as was Nancy Drew, and that's my favorite description of both character as well as author, was that um, she refused to sign any of the revised versions, simply because they were, in essence, not her work. And as a writer, Leslie was outraged, too, by the way, yeah. So... um, I think that as far as the characterization of Nancy, that Millie did have a tremendous amount of input on that as she wrote the character. I know there is a little bit of pullback as to how independent she was from the beginning. And then when Harriet came on board, um, I recall, you know, reading some of the correspondence where um, Harriet did that, you know, wanted to, I, I guess, more or less settle her character down a little bit more so. Um, she was made older, and that was in essence so that she could legally drive in every state. Since you know Nancy went from solving <laughs> mysteries in you know her little town to you know all over, mm-hmm. all over. So you know, tremendous change throughout the evolution 
of the series. And, you know, there could be much debate about that. The reality is the series is still in various forms. The character is still alive and well. So, you know, um, whether it was right or whether it was wrong, it was what both Millie felt was right about the her character, about the character, and what Harriet felt was best for the series. So Millie wrote 23 of the first 30. Um, and although Nancy Drew and writing Nancy Drew and being the original Carolyn Keene is obviously a huge part of her story, it is just a part of her story. She went on to write 135 books, all told, mm-hmm. many uh, many others for the Stratemeyer Syndicate, but many other series that she created that were very similar to Nancy Drew and some of the other independent young women that she was writing about. And then, of course, she was a, a Blade reporter here in the Toledo area for many years and became a, a pilot. So a very interesting, interesting story. Yeah, you know, I think the the, the writer. Millie and and um, Leslie McFarlane, they really had, at least with Leslie, a love-hate relationship with what they created because mm-hmm. um, Leslie McFarlane was a newspaper man and he originally, journalist, originally you know wrote these books for extra money. He didn't do it for the art of it. He did it solely for the money. So mm-hmm. he wanted to um, do real freelancing for Saturday Evening Post. He wanted to be a real you know a real writer. So. He wrote. I, he had. He kept diaries for 25 years. That's where I got a lot of my information, and and this is kind of funny. His daughter was telling me this, and I saw it in the diary. He occasionally, in the diary, would refer to the Hardy Boys as the Hardy Brats. Have to write another one of the Hardy Brats because it was just grunt work to him. I mean, I, that may have been a, be a bit of an exaggeration, but it's like if you're, you know, you have you want to paint and then you end up doing something just for the paycheck so you can paint, so you can do right. that. And that's right. kind of how he felt. Yet, you know, then he, no one was more surprised than Leslie McFarlane when, he, you know, these things got so big. And then when he was older, you know, um, and he finally revealed his identity, people would, would you know, wanted to talk to him. He, he didn't reveal it. I don't know. Did, did Millie see? They had to sign something with Stratemeyer well, saying, I will never reveal my identity. And do you know, for no. 30 years, he never he never told anybody. He said well, he signed that thing, you know. So I don't. Okay, so I'm going to be a little feisty here myself and suggest <laughs> that um, there was never really any. They signed releases, but there was never anything contractually that they signed that suggested they would not reveal themselves. Um, it was just an understood thing that you. Um, the release was very simple. Um, it suggested again that they. Um, they agreed to whatever rate that they would be right, paid for right. the book. On average, it was right. like $125, which sounds like a pittance, yeah. but back in the day, it was like two months of a reporter's salary. So it right. was, you right. know, they didn't get any royalties, sadly. Um, and that they could not write under the pseudonym for, you know, Millie could not write as Carolyn Keene for anything else. So um, Millie's, my book actually starts with a trial in 1980, when um, Millie was called upon to be a witness on behalf of Grosset, the original publisher of Grosset and Dunlap, because Harriet had decided to switch switch allegiances and have um, Simon & Schuster publish Nancy Drew's 
and um, there was, you know, it was a financial decision. Crossit wasn't willing to increase their um, fee structure to um, Stratemeyer, so Harriet worked out a deal with Simon and Schuster, and Crossit sued them, sued her. And Millie was called in as a witness, and really trying to establish who had the rights to the book, who mm. was the authorship, mm. and you know, writers, and all of that. Um, it was a very difficult chapter to write, given the fact that this book is for middle grade audience. And yet, I think that I'm, as a writer, I never, um, you know, I always want to presume that my audience is um, smart enough to understand most of the terminology. I mean, they watch TV, so they know, you know, trials and situations like that. So, Millie, hmm. uh, Millie's identity was revealed as the original ghostwriter at that trial in 1980 and yet mysteriously nobody really knew about the fact that she was the original ghostwriter until 1993 when the University of Iowa at stage the Nancy Drew conference and Millie was truly celebrated and it made national news Millie was on you know the, the person of the week on one of the you know national networks um, so here she was that Gosh, I don't recall how, how you know, in her, her 90s, she lived to be 96 years of age. So, you know, pushing oh. 90 at that point and being revealed very publicly as mm. being this original ghostwriter. And nobody could answer the question as to why was it that obviously there was this trial in 1980 where it's gone on public record that she was the original ghostwriter. And then not mm. until, you know, 13 years later. Um, so I, I don't know that's part of the mystery behind the story, but she obviously became known as that after 1993 as that original ghostwriter. Yeah, Leslie was on, uh, well, he was on To Tell the Truth, I think, in the 70s. Oh, as Franklin fun. W. So, but but yeah. you're right, it was still quite a bit, and I think it was quite a bit later, when you, and I agree, you'd think that way before that we would have known, but I think mm-hmm. that was one of the first times people knew that he was Franklin W. Dixon. I thank both of you very much, Marilyn Greenwald and Julie Rubini, and we'll look forward to your Thursday, February 2nd talk with the Thurber House and uh, more information on that is available at crafttheshow.com Thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank Thank you you. as well. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.